Our story begins in January of 2023. A small Dutch digital news operation called Follow the Money printed an allegation that South Pole, the world's most influential climate consultancy, had sold what were essentially concocted emission rights to hundreds of companies as part of its carbon offsetting business. Then in March, after a nine-month investigation, Britain's Guardian, the German weekly Desite and Source Material published other allegations that the world's leading carbon credit certifier, Vera, had indicated that more than 90% of its rainforest offset credits do not represent genuine carbon reductions. Fast forward then to October, when a lengthy article in The New Yorker magazine picked up on the South Pole story and related a long and in-depth tale about the people and the ideas and the values involved in both South Pole, the organization, and the whole business of carbon offsetting. So does carbon offsetting really have a part to play in the battle against climate change? And if so, how should companies engage with it? And how should they include carbon offsets in their strategies and through what means? Joining Darian and I for this chat was Mark Allen, co-founder of Unravel Carbon, a decarbonisation platform that helps organisations measure, reduce and report their carbon emissions. So I actually found out about the article through Mark. We happened to be together speaking about the work that Unravel Carbon were doing and he was reading it on his screen. So I went back and read it. And what I thought was really interesting is that it almost traces the whole history of carbon offsetting and the carbon markets. And both Mark and I have been working on sustainability for so many years that we started to reflect on what it was like when we first started out working in these areas. So I trained as an environmental engineer, Mark trained as a chemical engineer, I believe, both of us in Australia. And so we're coming at this from quite a different perspective. But the article, which is called The Great Cash for Carbon Hustle by Heidi Blake, goes through the history of how people started to look at carbon offsets. And it even traces the company that first came up with the idea of how they could offset what was coming out of the emissions from their smokestack and put these trees that they're offsetting with in another location. And so I think the article is really interesting to look at the evolution of it starting as maybe a fringe solution and how it went through the UN system, became much more mainstream, it had a lot of different governments sign up to it. Obviously, we have the COP process, the Conference of the Parties, where you have all of these big discussions on climate change, until it started to get to the corporate world, and corporates started to invest in carbon credits. And now we're starting to see a lot more scepticism, or at least some doubts, about the value of carbon credits when it comes to actually dealing with climate change. The New Yorker as a publication, as a journal, is a, you know, is a, is a narrative storytelling uh, medium and, and they like to uh, give it some, some character and some body and, and, and they did. And so, and Heidi Blake, she created a hero who is the, the guy who started South Pole and it describes him as a kinetic, grandiloquent man. But in the end, he turns out not to be a hero at all. And then there was the shady white Zimbabwean who was uh, owning the forest in Zimbabwe upon which this whole story was based. And, and he treats the whole thing like a joke uh, and even says at one point in the article, I'd probably go to prison for this and then laughs about it. Uh, and then there's the, the close childhood friend who ends up being betrayed. So it's all very Shakespearean and brutal. 
this Zimbabwean bought some trees. South Pole said, oh, we can use this forest as a base of carbon credits, which will help offset the, uh, the emissions of other companies. So let's sell them. Yep, yep. And look, conceptually, the idea of carbon credits is is not necessarily wrong or bad, right? But relies a lot on things like measurement and verification and ensuring baselines are set, right? So we've got all these different types of credits that exist um, for doing carbon avoidance projects or carbon removals projects or, you know, these these avoided deforestation projects, right, which is where, where this sits. So, you know, in purely technical terms, it is about you're doing something additional, which is I'm protecting an area of forest. If not for the actions I've taken, that forest would have been, would have disappeared, would have been deforested. So I'm creating more emissions absorption than I otherwise would have. So that then, the, the financial instrument, which is the carbon credit itself, is created to then provide this monetary incentive that says I can sell that to someone else who's generating a ton of emissions somewhere. And they can say, I bought a credit. And then I, when I retire that, then I've offset one ton of emissions from, um, from what I've emitted, right? So kind of credits themselves exist as financial instruments, but the robustness of the system does vary. That's for sure. There was a website set up by a group of, I think, students, and it was called Cheat Neutral. And it came back to my mind because it was mentioned in this New Yorker article. So cheat neutral was a concept of, well, you can cheat, but you can pay for an offset and make it okay. So a scenario might be that Josh is a computer programmer who lives in London and has been happily with his girlfriend, Sarah, who works in PR for the past three years. Josh was unfaithful to Sarah and cheated on her. And so he bought a credit, a cheating offset, and invested in Margot who lives in Dorset and is 75 years old and a Mormon. And so she guaranteed not only to have been faithful for the past five years, but indefinitely. So there was a permanence to this solution. And then they went around and asking people, so do you think Josh has really offset his infidelity to Sarah? Sarah, are you happy that Josh is now in the clear because he offset his credit with someone who wasn't going to have sex? And I think if you put it in those terms, people started to think about, oh, yeah, maybe actually the damage done can't just be removed by paying money for somebody else to do it. And that, to me, was an interesting way to conceptualize the carbon market, which I don't hear discussed. But that's a little bit unfair, though, isn't it? Carbon offsetting at its core makes a certain amount of sense, doesn't it? I mean, the, the idea that carbon pollution is global and therefore the solution can also be global, makes a certain amount of sense. Uh, the idea that I go and plant uh, an entire forest full of trees, and that makes a difference to the carbon problem because it does take some carbon out of the atmosphere, again, at its root, makes a certain amount of sense. Does that? At its root, it makes a certain amount of sense. And Mark has already said what yeah. you need to make sure that it continues to make sense regarding getting your baselines, actually measuring the impact of the proposal, but also ensuring that there is a level of permanence. Uh, so, for example, if you invested in a yeah. forest that then caught fire, 
what is going to happen to those permanent carbon credit solutions uh, that you invested in. And I guess that's a topic of discussion that's that's happening right now, where there's a certain element of sort of people in this business saying perhaps there's a, a bunch of offsets or a bunch of credits that should be discounted because actually you can't demonstrate permanence anything greater than 20 years, which means I should be buying four of those for every ton that I emit. So they're only worth, you know, a quarter of a ton each as opposed to being worth a ton, right? But um, to your point as well, Darian, it's buying offsets is not a get out of jail free card by any stretch of the imagination and, and nor does it obviate the need to actually reduce your emissions in the first place, right? We should only be using using carbon credits um, for residual um, and I think in hard to abate sectors as well. Yeah, and I think Singapore has done something interesting with that residual hard to abate sector because partly we're talking about the voluntary carbon markets here. Um, in Singapore, there is a carbon tax. The proposal is to increase that carbon tax continuously up till 2030, where it may peak at around $80 um, per tonne. And the Singapore government has said that companies can use international carbon credits to offset up to 5% of their taxable emissions liability. So it's not saying you can completely offset all of your carbon emissions. Uh, what it is saying is, you know, maybe there's around up to 5%, which is hard to abate, as Mark mentioned, and there is value in having carbon credits in that sense. I think one of the more interesting aspects of the article, actually, was that the way it painted the entire industry. Now, you're, you're saying that there is value in it, uh, and we've agreed that conceptually it can work. But what the article was trying to point out, or trying to suggest, was that the entire industry is fraudulent. She quoted a number of statistics, all of which suggested that the vast majority of the people in this space are either corrupt or not operating the system in a way that is optimal, and that companies that get involved should beware. Is that fair? So I think you definitely need to do your due diligence, and it is buyer beware. So I think back to a very large company based in Asia that I used to work for at that time, I wanted to invest in biodiversity, ocean biodiversity, so protecting mangroves and coral reefs. And so I started to look for if there were any blue carbon credits. And at that time, they really weren't. And I looked at South Pole. They had a few projects in the US that was something to do with water. My ultimate goal was actually biodiversity protection. But the only mechanism that I could see to do this and have the financial input and the longevity of engaging the communities was through the carbon credit process. But in my due diligence, I couldn't find a project that really had the impact that I was looking for or the permanence. And I say this because I remember there was a mangrove project where people would go to plant mangroves and feel like they were doing a very good thing and they'd would then go back to, let's say, North America and say, how are my mangroves going? And this project would send photos of a mangrove. Yeah, they are. They're doing well. Actually, they ripped out those mangroves and replanted them for the next customer the next day. So there was no real oversight and there was no credibility. So I think carbon credits and projects do have value, but you do need to make sure that it is genuine and you need to have proper measurement 
of those indicators that Mark was talking about. And Mark, this is particularly relevant to you, isn't it? Because uh, you know, you've taken a new approach to addressing this problem. Yeah, that, that's right. Um, and I suppose to, to reflect on, of course, the question you asked, um, the answer, of course, is it depends. And yes, Darian is correct. You should all sort of corporates should be doing their own due diligence in terms of what sorts of emissions um, reductions or abatements or carbon credits they they buy. But um, yeah, you know, we're we're very much focused on uh, providing data and insights into companies' own emissions, providing these levers that they can pull to reduce their own emissions. And then, of course, we provide somewhere required advisory in, hey, here's the sorts of carbon credit projects you should be thinking about, should you be thinking about buying those, right? But, you know, we do, of course, insist that um, companies do all they can to reduce their emissions first, right? And And at least explore all the possibilities and then know that, well, actually, your big material emissions reductions will cost you, you know, $300 a tonne to abate that because it's a big technical project. Um, so it doesn't make sense to do that today, but it does make sense to at least think about that today. Um, uh, in the interim, then you can use, you know, uh, carbon credits that are high quality and permanent and additional and all these things. So, you know, I've got um, a checklist of, sort of what I personally recommend in terms of how one should choose a registry, because there's all these different registries that exist that host carbon carbon credits, um, and then how one should choose a project, right? And then you can make use of, you know, all of these external ratings agencies, there's a few of them popping up that say, hey, this is a good unit, this is a bad unit, and this is everything in between as well. But, you know, as Darian said, due diligence is everything. And, and, and to Darian's point, I mean, governments are trying to get to that, right? We got the new the Voluntary Carbon Markets Initiative has just come up. We got the Integrity Council for Voluntary Carbon Markets. So the question is, anyone reading the New Yorker is going to think, okay, I'm staying away from this whole thing. Is that actually damaging the process? Because we're so far down the line of having this process in place. Surely the the approach is to fine-tune the system rather than just blow it out of the water. I think so. And I think there is a lot of fine-tuning of the system. So you mentioned the Integrity Council uh, for Voluntary Carbon Markets. So we've had discussions at the COP process. We now have Article 6 discussions taking place with countries looking at their nationally determined contributions. We are getting to that process, but I think we have seen, I think, with the former CEO of Vera when he resigned, you know, he said that when he came into that organization, so Vera also certified carbon credits, he was expecting that the regulated market would come in very quickly. And there he was almost 10 years later, and there still wasn't a regulated market. And in this sense, I'll be a bit controversial, I think we could draw some analogies between carbon markets and the crypto markets. Uh, we hear with the trial of Sam Bankman-Fried now going on in the United States that uh, actually FTX were looking for regulation, whether it was through uh, the government in the United States or here in Singapore. And I can see that also the voluntary carbon market is looking for some level of regulation from governments as well, because they need that structure and they need to build trust. And one of the things that the articles, whether it's from the New Yorker or from The Guardian, where there's been another significant expose, is that it does start to erode trust in the system. 
and and I certainly agree with that. I think it would be foolish to assume that the voluntary market um, itself won't be regulated in some way um, in the future. Right now, there's there's this wide gamut of sort of availability of different things and of varying quality, and some of them are very questionable, right? And to, it takes some expertise to sort of sort the wheat from the chaff. But, um, you know, I do see regulation coming, and then by extension, I almost see there's a case to say that the compliance markets will probably end up taking over. The compliance markets are significantly larger than the voluntary markets um, at the moment anyway, right? And this is... It's a, it's a distinction worth, worth articulating yeah. a bit more on, actually, Mark, because the compliance markets versus the voluntary markets are distinctions that I, your average corporate is not going to necessarily understand. Yeah, yeah, well, of course. So the compliance market is really about, you know, where you're being compelled to do something that involves um, carbon credits in some way. So the EU emissions trading scheme is all about buying... EUAs providing the ability to trade sort of the um, uh, emissions reduction units that exist within the EU. And then you've got China with its emissions trading scheme that's sort of going through a few fits and starts, but but growing. Um, and, you know, Australia has Australian carbon credit units. So all of these exist within compliance systems because they're regulated and managed by a regulator, by the government, right? Who then sets the rules. This is who needs to buy them. Um, sometimes they're fixed price, sometimes they're floating price, market driven, but it still sits within sort of a government regulatory framework. The voluntary market on the other, on the other hand is where companies are making voluntary commitments to reducing their emissions uh, and they're doing stuff not because they're being told to but because they want to right they want to show that they're reducing their emissions so they go off and buy units on the voluntary market right and in there there's a number of registries they all kind of compete with each other right as so um but you've got someone like vera who dominates the market 70 plus percent of total market share um but then all this varying sort of quality in terms of governance processes and addressing double counting and, you know, all these things that are actually critical for um, the voluntary market to exist. So, you know, I, I do potentially see a future where sort of everyone, like all countries, are managing their, their emissions, their, their domestic emissions, with a compliance market which then means perhaps, you know, voluntary market units just sort of get sucked into that as, as this way of of getting additional units into into countries that are potentially lower cost. Listening to you from the perspective of a, a non-participant in this market, you know, I'm not surprised that all these companies are getting away with all these apparently slightly shady behaviours because... It's just so complex. So this is where I think it comes down to risky business because it is complex. And listening to Mark speak about this and this is what Unravel Carbon gets involved in every day. And so they are experts in this area. But most companies are not deep experts in the carbon markets. So if you're making claims around carbon neutrality, you really need to be able to understand what claims you're making, how you're claiming them, and really what's driving that behavior. You know, why are you going to make these claims and what is it about your business that you're trying to improve? And I reflect on a company that approached me to help them 
be able to make net zero claim. And I said, okay, this is good. Uh, where are you starting at? And actually, they were a trader in, we'll say, fossil fuel derivatives. Now, it's very hard when fundamentally your business is to do with the consumption of fossil fuels to get to be a net zero company. And really, the whole strategy was, well, we're just going to offset. And this is where I think businesses need to think about that fundamental point that we discussed earlier, which is what we're trying to do when solving for climate change is to reduce the amount of fossil fuel being burned. To what extent do you think that happens? I mean, how, what percentage of the people who are involved in this market are doing it simply as a way of avoiding actually reducing carbon? To what extent is it a fig leaf for bad behaviour? Or is, are, the, are the people who are just cynically manipulating the system the minority of the players? Yeah. I think it's a bit of both. I think a lot of companies have now started to genuinely decarbonize, take climate change seriously in all of its many different forms. Because, of course, fighting climate change isn't just about reduction of CO2 emissions. We have to start to look at all different aspects of nature and biodiversity, whether it's the impact on biodiversity on water, on people, on livelihoods, and you need to have an integrated approach. And I think a lot more companies are coming around to this perspective and integrating sustainability into what they're doing as a business from a strategic perspective. But there will remain uh, some companies who are using the fig leaf approach, and then you're going to have the role of investigative journalism to expose where this fig leaf is really just covering up some bad behaviour that's going on behind it. That element of investigative journalism is interesting to note on too, because you know the, the risk to businesses is perhaps financial. They invest in these things and make a financial loss, but it's also reputational, right? Uh, and companies like Porsche, uh, Nespresso, uh, VW, I mean, so many big global names have been caught up in the South Pole scandal and have appeared in the paper uh, and presumably suffered as a consequence. And it's interesting how many people started to pile in on the story, isn't it? It's difficult to be, I think, that black and white, which is, you know, to say some credits are bad, therefore all credits are bad. Um, because I don't think that's the case. All journalists and... are bad because they'll come along and smear you with whatever they can find. <laughs> And of course, yes, reputational slash social license risk is a key consideration when we are doing anything around sort of climate change and, and sustainability, right? And, and my advice is always to do all the right due diligence and make sure that, you know, you've dotted enough I's and crossed enough T's to be comfortable in the decisions we make. I risk assessment is far and away like one of the key portions of what we're doing so so what risks am i exposed to from these decisions i'm making right and um, making sure that's of course of course watertight and then finally my view is the key to appropriate disclosures with respect to sustainability and climate change is transparency, right? So just being like quite transparent in what we're saying and what we're doing and why we're doing them. You know, we don't need to give every number, but we do need to give a, an insight into our thought processes as companies to get to that point that then gives 
our stakeholders' confidence that we're actually making, you know, correct decisions, right? There's always going to be a risk involved with every decision we make, but it's about how do we minimise that risk exposure. Building on that, I used to work on a concept of radical transparency, which is even being transparent about things when they're not going so well, because no decision series is ever going to be perfect. I think a lot of companies who first report on their baseline for carbon emissions, for example, then realize that there are errors in the way that they have measured and that they can improve on it. But I think you need to be transparent that the process isn't perfect and that you are constantly working on it. This is why it's often said that sustainability is a journey, um, but you should be transparent and not make claims that you don't have some evidence behind The 100% good news story all the time is one of my indicators for greenwashing. So if someone's only telling good news, I'm like, oh, well, there's, there's some skeletons there, and uh, this, is, this smells a bit like greenwashing to me. Well, I, I was reading an interview with Renat Heusberger, the, the, the South Pole guy, in which he, he brought up the point, and I thought it was a fair point. Uh, I think to a certain extent he was defending his own actions, but the point that he made was companies that do offset generally tend to be more likely to then go on and reduce actual carbon emissions. They, they, once they get on that step ladder of movement, then, then they're motivated to go further. Uh, and, and he said that maybe instead of, instead of talking about climate offsets and trying to measure these things precisely, companies that invest in these things should just say, we are funding climate action. Is how you frame it an important element? I think how you frame it is important. Yeah, and, and I guess that there's there is there is some some truth to that, of course, and in in that in that framing thing, it is important. When we start talking about offsets in and of themselves, you know, that's actually a, a, all about accounting, right? I've got an emission here, and I want to reduce that emission there. Uh, so so the numbers are, are important um, uh, in that case. But I guess um, I also was reading recently, um, I think it was Silvera, who's one of the ratings agencies, they published a report that said basically the same thing, that the companies that are buying offsets are the ones who are actually doing emissions reduction um, opportunities and that, that sort of leap to get to that next stage is, is, is quite small. But... Um, there's, like I said, an element of truth in in what you just said. I, I do think sort of funding climate action becomes does become a little bit um, wishy washy then, right? And that's when when I would look at it and go, eh, that 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 feels a little bit fake. It feels a little bit again greenwashy. Um, but yeah, it, it is you know, important to recognise that the way in which we express what we're doing do does carry weight with, with our stakeholders. You started by saying that the media can create heroes and villains, and that's the way, you know, the New Yorker is going to sell its story. But that doesn't mean that companies have to sell their story in the same way. They have the opportunity to look at what they are genuinely doing to think about the purpose of their company and what they're trying to achieve and to tell their story in their way, but with evidence. So it isn't a fabrication. It is, this is the journey that we are on. These are the steps that we've taken. And this is the direction that we want to go in. And we actually have the perfect framework for this with transition to net zero. So the idea that many companies, many countries are going to transition to net zero emissions by 2050 
because this whole concept of transition is about change. It isn't saying that we are at this point now. It is that we are moving over a period of time in that direction. So I don't think you should be using wishy-washy language and you should have the numbers to back up what you're doing, but it does give you the opportunity to take more time in telling your story and to share some of those challenges along the way. Because yeah, I agree with Mark, if everything is perfect immediately, I wouldn't believe it. It brings us back to where we began to a certain extent, which is measurement. I mean, we're, we're so often emphasizing measurements in every aspect of sustainability, right? I mean, uh, accountability and measurement and transparency are key concepts. But in this particular one, the methodology, the measurement itself is the problem. Right. Lack of measurement. The right. lack of right. measurement is the problem. Well, no, you put it. It's the methods of measurement because what, what you're doing is you're measuring the carbon credit quality against the forest that's next to it, the one that is theoretically under threat, and understanding whether it is or not. Is it mm. under threat? Is it not under threat? It's kind of Schrodinger's forest in a way. You kind of, it's like if you can't measure what that other forest is doing, then you don't know what this forest is worth. Uh, and that entire methodology of measurement is the problem, isn't it? That is the problem, the methodology and the measurement. But it's not to say that having a methodology that's accepted and measurement is wrong. I mean, you're speaking to yeah, two engineers here. I think this is part of the problem of sustainability and ESG, that it's strayed too far away from sticking with believable numbers and that you can communicate how you came up with these numbers. There's a lot of confidence tricks in the carbon markets that go on at the moment. And I guess key, key to this, of course, is this particular case, the measurement is done against a theoretical baseline. So your counterfactual is actually something that doesn't exist and never existed, right? It's some, some alternate universe where that got deforested. Um, now, it, it does, of course, make some sense from a methodological point of view that you've got a, a like a control forest, right? But at the same time, it's kind of false because you're making a call that that forest might have been deforested when, you know, it may not as well, you know, who knows the vagaries of, of the logging industry um, also, which is then the challenge, right? And it's certainly a challenge with avoided deforestation projects. This, this is the sort of thing that one would incorporate into your due diligence. Am I comfortable with avoided deforestation? Or should I be doing something that's potentially more technical, more tangible, and something that we can actually measure? You know, if it's clean cook stoves or if it's carbon capture and storage or... Cook stoves are the classic example of that, where people actually do have a reasonably robust methodology and you can look at the steps that people have taken. It's tangible. You can go and look. Were they using this cook stove? Were they not? And has it lasted over time? So what are the conclusions from all this then? The idea is that there are companies out there who are sitting there going, okay, I want to make a kind of a difference. I, I want to begin to get into compliance. I want to begin to get into managing my own carbon emissions. This seems like a path forward. What's a framework for them to begin to address uh, the process of using carbon offsets? So I don't think you should go in with the question of how many offset, offsets should I buy and how much and where. The process is to develop, first of all, what is your strategy? What are you trying to achieve? Then 
How am I going to get there? What is my baseline? Where am I now? And then measuring the progress against an action plan. And if you're trying to be a sustainable company, it goes across many different indicators. It shouldn't just be about CO2 emissions. So when you're saying, what am I trying to achieve? It's not how much of my carbon do I want to offset, but how does carbon offsetting fit into the broader Correct. Yes, If you're a food company, you are trying to provide food for people. So if we link it back to the UN Sustainable Development Goals, for example, what are you trying to solve for? Is it zero hunger? Is it gender equality? Is it life below water? Start to think about what are these big global challenges that you are trying to solve for within your company's context and develop an action plan along those lines. And maybe there will be a portion which is carbon offsetting, but even within that, you might be trying to achieve different aspects around community engagement or livelihoods or food security. But I don't think investing in carbon offsets should come in isolation from what your business is trying to achieve. It's part of an overarching strategy and an overarching set of goals. What am I trying to achieve as a company? How does climate change and sustainability risk influence my business strategy, right? And and one thing that, um, of course, Darian touched on and I've been very passionate about for far too long now, but sustainability is not something you do off to the side, right? It's not once a year I'm going to do my climate, my carbon emissions and and develop my my plan. It's actually that sustainability and climate risk must be incorporated into your business strategy. It's not a separate strategy. It's your business strategy. It just has all these additional aspects in it, right? So that use of offsets is part of it. Now, if you ask me, um, first step you should do, it would be remiss of me to not say, you need to understand your baseline first and you need to do your measurement of your own um, organization. You need to know where you're at. What are you trying to achieve? How do you get to where you want to be? Um, and of course you do that with data at, at the end of the day, right? And and then risk analysis and all these sort of cool aspects of incorporating sustainability challenges into your business strategy. Well, carbon credits are not the only area of the climate issue that's weathering some controversy right now. Indeed, the very concept of ESG itself is coming under increasing fire from the media and from both sides of the political spectrum. Why is that? Find out on the next episode of Risky Business Asia.